John chapter 20, beginning in verse 19. On the evening of that day, the first day of the week, the doors being locked where the disciples were for the fear of the Jews, Jesus came and stood among them and said to them, Peace be with you. When he had said this, he showed them his hands and his side. Then the disciples were glad when they saw the Lord. Jesus said to them again, Peace be with you. As the Father has sent me, even so I am sending you. And when he had said this, he breathed on them and said to them, Receive the Holy Spirit. If you forgive the sins of any, they are forgiven them. If you withhold forgiveness from any, it is withheld. Now Thomas, one of the twelve, called the twin, was not with them when Jesus came. So the other disciples told him, We have seen the Lord. But he said to them, Unless I see his hands, the mark of the nails, and the place my finger and place my finger in the mark of the nails and place my hand into his side i will never believe 8 days later his disciples were inside again and thomas was with them although the doors were locked jesus came and stood among them and said peace be with you then he said to thomas put your finger here and see my hands and put out your hand and place it in my side do not disbelieve but believe Thomas answered him, My Lord and my God. Jesus said to him, Have you believed because you have seen me? Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. The internet's been around long enough that we know that it's a, a crazy place. If you go to the comments on a YouTube, in a YouTube video or a Facebook post, this seems like maybe one of the last uh, frontiers of unpredictability in our world. You see a post, someone posts something about their pet cat uh, and doing something cute at the front door, and you say, look how cute my cat is. And then a bunch of comments, oh, yes, what a cute cat. But uh, what makes the internet an unpredictable place is that you may see, yeah, what a cute cat, and a lot of cat affirmation, but you also might find a crazy comment. How about the owner is completely incompetent, and how dare you let your cat outside in temperatures like these? And then it seems like these comments begin to feed on each other, spiraling out of control, an endless chain of like groupthink where people are like, yeah, this guy, can you believe him and what he does to cats? And then you, they're all of a sudden like tagging the police station, tagging the humane society, and things are way out of control. And the internet is a crazy place. Um, where you can find some of the most absurd claims, whether it be about a person posting something about their cat or about anything. Uh, because anyone can post kind of anything. We have this rise of fake news in our society. And so because of that, many times when information is presented on the internet, it's spurned, it's rejected, and even rejected with contempt. And at a personal level, people sometimes say something like this. When, when there's something that is asserted on the internet that can't be immediately, uh, immediately proven, someone would say something like, pics or it didn't happen. Like, show us the pictures. Pics or it didn't happen. Like, you don't need to provide evidence. I don't believe it. You have to show me something. I need to see something more in order to accept this internet claim that you've made. We see that happen here in this passage this morning. The narrative in John's gospel in these 11 verses, in verses 19 through 29, happened surrounding Thomas. So far uh, in chapter 19, or excuse me, chapter 20, we're in chapter 20, verse 19 through 29. Earlier in chapter 20, what we looked at last week is that we saw uh, the narrative sort of center around three characters. We saw the narrative center around three characters, John, the apostle, the writer of this gospel, and then Peter, and then Mary Magdalene. And obviously, the th main thrust of what's going on here is the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ is raised from the dead and now has appeared to Mary Magdalene, and now in this passage, to all of the disciples. But there is one character that this passage, these 11 verses in John, and that's Thomas. Thomas is not present, we learn in verse 24, when Jesus appears to his disciples the first time on that first day, on that Sunday evening, on the first resurrection Sunday evening. He does not, he's not there. And then 
He is there for the second appearance eight days later, we're told in verse 26. And so again, John continues to construct these post-resurrection accounts around the characters that we see here. And we can, again, like we talked about last week, see very clearly um, in, like ourselves in a mirror. We're supposed to see ourselves in the recognition of who we are in light of how these characters interact with the post-resurrection Jesus. Jesus appears here in verse 19 to a group without Thomas present and then again with him present. And so that puts Thomas at the center of what we are going to talk about this morning. The demand for something more. The demand for some more evidence. The The first appearance on the first day uh to the disciples excluding Thomas, contains a commission. And this is what's going to guide our time together this morning. This commission that Jesus gives to his disciples, excluding Thomas in verses 19 through 23. And then Thomas's spurning and then belief in the reality of the resurrection in verses 29, 24 through 29. So, again, without Thomas, and then with Thomas, ascending and aspurning. So first, look at verse 19. This is the sending. The sending components. When we think of Jesus' commission, Jesus sends his disciples out in each gospel. Or at least each gospel writer contains an element of sending his disciples into the world, uh, both um, anticipating or being present at the ascension of Jesus. What happens when Jesus ascends to the Father's right hand, where he is now? What happens to the disciples? What is going to, what's their task now that Jesus is going away, ascending into heaven? The most common commission that we have is the Great Commission, which you probably have heard before. It's Matthew 28, 18 through 20. Where Matthew writes, and Jesus came to them and said, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I've commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. This is probably the most comprehensive commission that Jesus gives. For disciples to take the gospel to the world to teach and to observe all that he has commanded, to baptize in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, to go and to make disciples, and all based on Jesus' authority. Jesus tells his disciples to do this in Matthew's Gospel as he is ascending into heaven. Go make disciples. This is now your task. I am ascending to the Father's right hand. Go make disciples. Luke includes a commissioning as well, although it's not in Luke's gospel, it comes in Acts, which Luke wrote. Sort of the second part of two two parts in his story. Luke includes this commissioning, and the account happens at Jesus' ascension as well. Jesus says, But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, and all Judea, and Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. Luke captures a little bit of a different perspective here. He says to the disciples that they will become his witnesses and then that they'll go out to the ends of the earth and take the gospel there. So in Matthew, we see the task to make disciples, to baptize and to teach based on Jesus' authority. And now in Acts chapter 1, verse 8, Jesus says that they will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon them, and then they will bear witness, not just to their immediate community, but all the way to the ends of the earth. Matthew and Luke, those gospel writers, include a sending or commission at Jesus' ascension. But John here in our passage, in verses 19 through 23, is recording a sending or a commission on the evening. The first thing that he says to his disciples, the first conversation that he has with them after he's been raised from the dead is to send them. Look at verse 19 with me. 
On the evening of that day, the first day of the week, the doors being lo- the doors are locked here. Jesus has been crucified. Mary Magdalene, at the end of our passage last week, went and reported to, in verse 18, reported to the disciples that she had seen the Lord. But that report may have heightened the disciples' fear for the Jews. The Jewish leadership was upset. They had Jesus crucified. And so the doors are locked, and we see right here in verse 19 where the disciples were for fear of the Jews. They were afraid. They might have been accused of removing Jesus' body themselves. We know from Matthew's gospel that the Jewish leadership did in fact fear that the disciples would take the body of Jesus and claim that Jesus was alive. So what they did was that they had a big stone rolled in front of the tomb. In Matthew 27, 62 through 66, this is recorded. The next day, that is, after the day of preparation, the chief priests and the Pharisees gathered before Pilate and said, Sir, we remember how the imposter said when he was still alive, after three days I will rise. Therefore, order the tomb to be made secure until the third day, lest his disciples go and steal him away and tell the people, He has risen from the dead, and the last fraud will be worse than the first. Pilate said, you have a guard of soldiers, go make it as secure as you can. So they went and made the tomb secure by sealing the stone and setting a guard. Now that the body is gone, Mary has reported that she saw the Lord. Peter and John, who are amongst their midst, saw saw the empty tomb. Fear might have come upon them because wherever Jesus is, they don't know where he is, if he's alive or if he's dead, if the body has just been taken or if he is actually alive. They are fearful of the Jews that they'll suffer the same fate that, they just, that Jesus just suffered. The, wor- the last fraud will be worse than the first, and they'll come for them as well. So the doors are locked, but Jesus walks right in. John makes a point to share this detail with us. Jesus has taken on his glorified body, his resurrected body, and this is the body that Jesus inhabits right now, even in this moment. And apparently locks don't matter. (laughs) Apparently locks don't matter to him in this body. Uh, But what you should not take away from this passage is that Jesus is some kind of ethereal, ghost-like being. He does inhabit a real physical body. His resurrected body, it is physical. And we see that here clearly in this passage. We see it clearly when the the marks, the wounds that were inflicted upon him as he was crucified can be touched. The finger can be placed in the marks. This body is fully physical. Thomas touches the physical wounds that Jesus' body still gave evidence to. And so the disciples are afraid. They're afraid of the religious leadership, but Jesus greets them. Look at how he greets them. He knows what they're they're going through. He already knows. And he says, peace be with you. Peace be with you. Now, this is a common Jewish greeting. To greet someone with peace is the way that you say hello. But Jesus gives it New meaning. Jesus' greeting of peace was fully realized in this moment. This is the first time a group of people were experiencing great fear because of a threat against their lives. And the peace that Jesus offers can grant comfort in a in way no, that no other greeting of peace ever could prior. Peace with God was now possible through Him. And for those who believe, peace is a reality. This peace be with you comes to the disciples, but it also comes to us. Paul writes in Romans 5.1, Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. The sin that put us at odds with God, we stood condemned. But by faith we have been justified. We have been made right. 
that sin is punishable by death and God's wrath is set against those who are in sin. And God is at war. He is at war with those who are in sin. He is not indifferent to those who are apart from Christ and who are in their sin. He is at war with them. But now in Christ, we can be justified. We're joined to Christ by faith, and in Him we are made right with God. And therefore, we have peace with God. We're no longer at war or at odds with God, but we have peace with Him. This is the peace that Jesus speaks to his disciples and the peace that we can have in Jesus Christ. A peace that cannot be robbed from the disciples. And so the commissioning, the sending that Jesus is giving to his disciples here in John's Gospel comes with this truth, this foundational truth. The sending of the disciples is based on the peace that they have with God through Jesus. Part of being a disciple of Jesus, part of being a Christian, is bearing witness to who Jesus is. We bear witness to who Jesus is by living according to the peace that he has given to us. For those who are justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. And our life gives evidence to that. It doesn't mean that difficult things don't happen to the believer. But it is far more about how you respond to difficulty and challenges in life. And sometimes Christians are really gloomy people. Sometimes we project this image that being a Christian means being miserable all of the time. And that we have to do things that we don't want to do. Because we paint a gloomy picture for others. A picture of joyless, humdrum, everything is bad. But then we half-heartedly tag on the end, but God is good. We kind of like force a little smile. But having peace with God, the peace that Jesus greets his disciples with, that peace that is for us if we're joined to Christ by faith, means that God is working everything for our good. Romans 8.28, And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good, for those who are called according to his purpose. Friends, the tru- what this saying is that this truth is not available to a non-believer, to a non-Christian. God is not working for the good of the unbeliever. To be an unbeliever is to be at odds with God, to be his enemy, to be at war with God, and to be destined for eternal separation from God in hell. But if you are in Christ, if you are joined to Christ by faith, if you are a Christian, you have peace with God. There is no threat of being separated from God for eternity. You are a son. You are a friend. You are an heir. Peace with God means that all things are designed by God than to work together for your good. And therefore, when Jesus greets the disciples with peace, the same peace that you and I can know through him, understanding that we've been justified by faith, the reality of that is that we no longer need to mope gloomily through this life. Rather, we can fight for joy, recognizing that this is objective reality for the believer. This is not subjective based on what you do or who you are or how you act, but has been given to you as a gift, a free gift, justified by faith, objectively knowing that Jesus made peace with God on our behalf by dying in our place and by paying our debt of sin. And so a question for you, does your attitude toward life give evidence that you have peace with God? Does your attitude towards life, does your attitude towards the snow yesterday give evidence that you have peace with God? Does your attitude towards your 
family members and friends, loved ones, co-workers, give evidence that you have peace with God. Jesus then shows his disciples in this passage his wounds in verse 20. He showed them his hands and his side. Then the disciples, here's what we hear it, the disciples were glad. They were glad when they saw the Lord. And Jesus repeats himself in verse 21, Peace be with you. And then he gets the sending. As the Father has sent me, so just like God sent me into the world, I've now fulfilled my purpose here, and I will ascend to the Father's right hand. As the Father has sent me, even so I am sending you. Peace with God is the foundation again for the sending, for the commission. This mirrors in sort of this interesting way Matthew's commission where Jesus says, all authority in heaven and earth has been given to me. The foundation, the foundational truth for the commissioning in Matthew's gospel is the authority of Jesus. The foundational truth, the grounding for Jesus' commissioning to the disciples in John's gospel is the peace that he gives them. This paints a comprehensive picture of our own sending, of our own commissioning. The Holy Spirit is the strength for the commission, Jesus says. And when, the, when, and when he had said that, he breathed on them and said, Receive the Holy Spirit. He gives them the Holy Spirit to bring a message of what? Forgiveness into the world in verse 23. Peace with God can be had through Jesus Christ, the one through whom sins are forgiven. We shouldn't take verse 23. Verse 23 is an often misrepresented and misinterpreted verse in Scripture. In verse 23, if you forgive the sins of any, they are forgiven them. If you withhold forgiveness of any from any, it is withheld. And we should not assume that the disciples then had some sort of power within themselves to forgive sin, because the Bible is clear elsewhere and throughout that it is God who has the power to forgive sins. Rather, the disciples, there's an acknowledgement here that the disciples are joined to the one through whom sins could be forgiven. They're joined to, they're united with Jesus. They could say to others confidently, believe in the Lord Jesus and you, your sins will be forgiven. The commission that Jesus gives here, which is not the most well-known of the commissions in, that the gospel writers give, but this commission here is for us as well. And we can learn a lot about how we are to take the gospel into the world based on the reality that every believer is given the Holy Spirit. In Christ, all that you need to proclaim a message of forgiveness is given to you. And our message is, in fact, a message of forgiveness. An infinite debt forgiven. An infinite debt of sin removed from our account and paid for by Jesus and his sacrifice. And so this commission comes in two ways. One, we tell others to believe in Jesus Christ. We call them, we proclaim to them this message of forgiveness, to believe in Jesus Christ and to trust him for the forgiveness of sins. And two, we freely forgive others when they wrong us, even as we have been forgiven. I want you to see this, that Jesus' commission here says that we proclaim a message of forgiveness we speak it to others, and then we demonstrate it. We demonstrate the forgiveness that we've received from God by actively forgiving others around us. We see it right in the Lord's Prayer in Matthew chapter 6, verse 12. And forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. You cannot... The, the, the direct implication of this is that you cannot carry out the mission to make disciples and be unforgiving. You cannot live in unforgiveness and do what Jesus is sending you into the world to do here in John's Gospel. Similarly, you cannot go into the world with the message of the Gospel 
and do so in fear. Because the reality that Jesus has given you and made peace with God on your behalf. If we decide to go into the world in a fearful way, not fully recognizing the peace that we have with God, and if we go into the world not fully understanding the forgiveness God has given us and freely forgiving others, then we uh, do so incorrectly. Because if we fail to forgive, we show that we have no understanding of the forgiveness offered to us in Jesus. The mission that Jesus gave to his disciples goes unfulfilled when we hold on to unforgiveness. The mission that Jesus gave to his disciples goes unfulfilled when we hold on to fear of man. If you share the gospel with someone, if you share Jesus with an unbelieving friend or family member or co-worker, but you refuse to forgive if someone has wronged you, then you are preaching a gospel, then you are proclaiming a gospel that you don't believe yourself and your life gives no evidence to. Jesus has given the disciples peace with God so that he sends them into the world in the power of the Holy Spirit to proclaim the message of forgiveness that comes through him. So that's first. We see the sending in verses 19 through 23. Thomas not present for this. And now Thomas is introduced in verse 24 and we see a spurning. Thomas misses, again, misses the gathering and the disciples relate to Thomas what they see. They say it in verse 25, just like Mary said it in verse 18. So uh, we have seen the Lord. We have seen the Lord. Jesus appeared among them and they saw him. He walked through the door even though it was locked. But look at Thomas's response, and this is the spurning. Rejecting the claim with contempt. Unless I, see this hand, uh, unless I see in his hands the mark of the nails and place my fingers in the mark of the nails and place my hand in his side, I will, in his side, I will never believe. Essentially here he's saying, Pixar didn't happen. I, I got to see it. Thomas says, I need proof. And so eight days later, same situation, disciples are inside, doors are locked again. Jesus comes in and stands among them. Look at what Jesus does too. He says, peace be with you. He greets them quickly and then he immediately goes after Thomas. They didn't shoot the breeze. They didn't have a cup of coffee. He went right after it. Address the elephant in the room. And he tells him to do exactly what Thomas wanted him to do. Put your finger here and see my hands. Put, your, put out your hand and place it in my side. And then the command. Do not disbelieve, but believe. He states that command both negatively and positively. And he does so for emphasis. We should pick up on this. This does not happen often, if ever, in this gospel. Do not disbelieve, but believe. Many calls to belief throughout John's gospel. But here he says, do not disbelieve, but believe. And he says so for emphasis, so that you and I would look at the page and say, okay, there's something going on here that we need to know. We'll get to that in a second. But then Thomas exclaims a statement of belief. He says, my Lord and my God. Now Thomas believes. But look at Jesus' reply. This is why John emphasizes this by stating the command that Jesus makes not to disbelieve negatively and then to believe positively. Have you believed because you have seen me? Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. Have you believed because you have seen me? Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. Now, we have to be careful Bible readers. You and I, we need to read this carefully because there's this modern notion in modern Christianity 
that goes something like this. Faith good, sight bad. Faith commendable, sight not so much. This is not biblically confirmable. This is not what Jesus is saying. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 7. This one goes up in the script fonts above the kitchen sink pretty often. For we walk by faith, not by sight. For we walk by faith, not by sight. Now some people say, see, faith is better than sight. But what Paul is saying in the context is now we walk by faith. Then we will walk by sight. When is the then? In eternity. We don't fully see in this life. Rather, we have eyewitness account like something in John's gospel. We read the words on the page and belief comes to us. The verse before 2 Corinthians 5, 7 says, we know that while we are at home in the body, that's here, we are away from the Lord. And then the verse after 7, you can see it on the screen. The verse after 7, I lost my spot. Uh, we would rather be away from the body and at home with the Lord, in verse 8. So there's a now and then component. Now, by faith, then, by sight. Paul is not setting up a hierarchy of what's better or worse. And so with that in mind, we have to mine the biblical principle. Like, if you took the, the, the brush and brushed off a little dirt, you'd be like, okay, but we didn't get there, now I need the pickaxe. We're going to mine, we're going to ferret out the true principle here. Because faith and sight are not at odds with each other. Rather, they represent a difference between temporary realm and eternal one. So when Jesus says, blessed are those who have not yet seen and, have, and yet have believed, what is he saying? Here's what he's saying. He's saying that God has chosen to reveal himself in a certain way. And for those who believe based on how God has chosen to reveal himself, those are the ones who are blessed. In other words, it is better to believe on God's terms than our own. Thomas demanded a particular sign that Jesus was alive in order to believe. But Jesus is saying you would have been more blessed to receive the testimony of the other disciples when they said, we have seen the Lord. To believe that Jesus was raised from the dead based on the testimony of his brothers in Christ. Thomas spurned the initial invitation to believe. And the, witnesses of the, other, the witness of the other disciple, we have seen the Lord, was not good enough for him. But here's what I want you to see. We so often, as people, demand things to be on our own terms. We want the belief that we have to come to us on our own terms. We are more like Thomas and less like the one who hears and believes. We're more like the ones who say, I've got to put my finger in the wound and I have to put my hand in the side. But we learn something incredibly important. Because while we can acknowledge together that we are more like Thomas than we care to admit, Jesus is patient and bears with us in our unbelief. Jesus bore with Thomas in his unbelief. Jesus could have showed up in that locked room and said, Thomas, I'm not doing that. I'm not showing you anything. I wore long sleeves so you can't see it. He's like, are you going to take their witness or not? That's not how Jesus deals. He deals gently with us. He deals patiently with us. Jesus bore with Thomas in his unbelief. Thomas demanded more, and Jesus was patient. And maybe, that's, maybe that is you this morning. You've been demanding something more. 
you've said, I, I, I believe that Jesus died and that he rose again, but I'm not really confident that that has any bearing on my day-to-day life. I'm not really confident that, that there aren't some substantial limits to what, I, to what I should do when I follow Jesus. But hear the words of Jesus. Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. And remember over and over and over again throughout John's gospel, this word belief isn't just this intellectual assent. It's far more than that. It's this transformation of life where, yes, you say, yeah, I believe the truth that's communicated here, but that has a transformative effect on my entire life. And as one who has been transformed by the truth that's contained here, I seek to obey all that God has commanded me in his word. Blessed are those who have not yet seen and yet have believed. The way that this works itself out for Christians is when they read a command in Scripture, do you rail against it or do you pursue it in joy? Do you say, no, 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 I'm not going to do that today, maybe tomorrow? Or do you say, even though I don't quite understand what it looks like to love my wife or submit to my husband or to love my neighbor, or to discipline my children, even though I don't know what that looks like, right now I'm going to seek to obey. I'm going to seek to practically live this in my day-to-day life. Even though I haven't seen or demanded, we demand good examples. You say like, oh, well, how do you do this? How do you do that? Rather than seeking good examples before we obey, learn to obey first. And we must stop making demands of Jesus. Saying, Jesus, I would obey you if I had a better example. If my parents parented me a little bit better. If I had more information. We make demands of Jesus saying, I will follow you this far. But he says, blessed are those who live, who believe who see things on my terms and who know and live according to them. Believe in the Lord Jesus and you will be saved. He's been patient with you to this point. If you're here this morning and you're thinking to yourself, I thought I believed, but the reality is that I don't know. My life gives literally no evidence. I don't know how my life is different before I thought I believed than it is now. Jesus has been patient with you to this point. Jesus owes you nothing. He owed Thomas nothing. He didn't owe, but he shows up and immediately, peace be with you, boom, look here. He did not owe him that in the slightest. Jesus Christ, because you will breathe again throughout the next second, has already given you far more, infinitely more even than you deserve. And simply by hearing the message that he died for you and freely invites you to come to him is infinitely more than you deserve. You are in these moments, in this room, hearing infinitely more than you deserve. And so all there is to say to that is come to Christ. Believe. Stop waiting for more. Stop postponing your obedience for a day when you can have more information or have a better example. Stop demanding more. Come to Christ. Believe. Submit your whole life to him. Stop waiting for more. Let's work towards a conclusion here. Three, three things, I think simple things that we can glean from this text. Based on Jesus' words to the disciples and Thomas' reaction. The first is this. Brothers and sisters, God has been patient with you, therefore be patient. Very simple. God has been patient with you, therefore be patient. 
if you, again, if you have, if you, if you're here and you have not trusted Jesus, know that God has been patient with you to this point. He's given you infinitely more than you deserve. He bears with you. He is offering himself to you this morning. Jesus Christ died for the forgiveness of your sins. Repent and come to Christ. Trust in Christ and be reconciled to God. If you have trusted Jesus, recognize that God was in fact patient with you up until the point that you turned from your sin and trusted in him. He is patient with you in your weakness. He has been patient with you as you have fumbled your way through the Christian life. You struggle with sin. God is patient with you. That is designed to produce patience in you. We live in a world with microwaves, with two-day shipping, although that's a mirage. Thanks, Amazon. Instant gratification. We're really bad at being patient. What we want, we want it now. You have little kids, you want silence. You act impatiently. You jump all over them. But God has been patient with you. And so we're called to be patient. Consider how you've been impatient. Again, you've lacked patience with your spouse, maybe your husband, when he didn't perform a task that you wanted done right away. You lacked patience with your wife this week when she failed to tell you about that noise that the car has been making for the last six weeks. You lacked patience with your kids as they put on their shoes. Or you lacked patience with your kids as they navigated life choices moving towards adulthood. You've lacked patience and wanted a new vehicle, so you went outside your means, took on more debt than you could handle, failed to steward what God has given you. You lacked patience demanding a pay raise that you had not earned. You lacked patience in the midst of difficulty and added to the hardship. You lacked patience with your brothers and sisters in the local church wanting to provide the kind of support that you thought you deserved on your terms. You lacked patience with God wanting to grow in maturity faster, serve him better, in your timing though, not in his. Jesus bore with Thomas and he bears with us. The example of patience and the strength to be patient can only come from Christ. Let me say that again. I don't want to blow through that. This example of patience, Jesus bearing with Thomas, and the strength to be patient can only come from Christ. Consider Colossians 3, 12 and 13. I love this this chapter in Colossians. Paul says, Put on then as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience. He expands on the last one. Bearing with one another. And if one has a complaint against another, (laughs) doing exactly what Jesus says to do when he commissions his disciples, forgiving each other. As the Lord has forgiven you, so you also must forgive. That leads directly then to our second concluding point. First, God has been patient towards with you, and that should build in you. It should create in you patience. Secondly, God has forgiven you, therefore forgive. This is the commission we have from Christ, to bring the message of forgiveness into the world. But you can't just say it. That's part of what's going on here. You can't just say it. If our world struggles with patience, it struggles even, patience is kind of that thing, right? If you don't, if someone's like, how can I pray for you? And then you're like, oh man, really? This person's asking how they can pray for me. And then you say, um, and you can, and then you say, well, I'm not very patient. You can you punt. It's an easy way to get that question off of us. But it is very rare that we ask someone, how can I pray for you? And they say, man, I'm really struggling with unforgiveness. Our world struggles with unforgiveness. Have you ever found yourself wronged, thinking that you've extended forgiveness 
only to have some interaction, some situation, dredge it back up. I mean, man, I really haven't forgiven that person. I thought I had forgiven, but I'm still actually holding this thing against them. I'm just going to give you... I'm just going to say it straight. The world has made a lot recently of a concept called boundaries. People always talking about having healthy boundaries, and if you're talking about knowing your limits, then good. We all have limits. We're created beings. We must know our limits. I know how many meetings I can take in my week before I'm completely socially spent and have no, nothing left in the tank for my family. I know that I need a good seven hours of sleep at night. I need to eat three meals a day or I'm uh, not great. I draw boundaries around those things so I can be effective in what God has given me. But here's where I'm going to shoot with you straight. Boundaries sometimes is just a culturally acceptable way of saying unforgiveness. Consider this deeply. Cutting out someone because they've offended you and called it a boundary is just neatly packaged unforgiveness. If you put lipstick on a pig, it's still a pig. But what if this person is repeatedly sinning against me, you say? Jesus addressed this. You should never make an excuse to exercise unforgiveness toward that person, even when they repeatedly sin against you. The disciples asked Jesus how many times. They asked him for a number. And Jesus says as many times as they sin against you, that's how many times you should forgive them. God's forgiveness to you doesn't come with a list of conditions. And we think that our forgiveness can. God's forgiveness is quite the opposite. God's forgiveness for you in Jesus indicates that you have free access to him. If we're going to effectively bring a message of forgiveness to the world, the one that Jesus sends us into the world with, then we must be practicing forgiveness in the way that Jesus teaches us. God has been patient with you, therefore be patient. God has forgiven you, therefore forgive. Final concluding point. You have peace with God through Jesus Christ. Therefore, do not fear. Therefore, do not fear. The disciples in the upper room were afraid of the Jewish leadership. They were afraid what they would do to him if Jesus' body was gone. If Jesus' body was not in the tomb and they didn't know where he was, and there was, they, they were afraid for their lives. But what Jesus does by speaking peace to them when he enters that room is removes that dynamic of fear. And if you read the book of Acts and you read how the disciples go into the world taking the gospel to the men and women that they engage with all the way to the ends of the earth, you see that their, that fear component goes away. They're beaten. They're imprisoned. Over and over and over and over again, they're slandered. And they continue to preach the gospel. Christians should therefore be risk takers. And I'm not saying be foolish and gamble with your life. But in taking the message of forgiveness to the world, we should be willing to endure much difficulty, much persecution, much hardship, much threats against us, and even death. A couple years ago, I had an opportunity. I was talking to an unbeliever, and he asked me, if someone put a gun to my head, would I die for my faith? And I said, I hope so. I, I think so. I hope so. Until you're put in that position, I mean, it's a, strictly a hypothetical. His immediate response to me, but what about your family? He said, what about, what about your family? And he thought, he thought this, and I, this argument it seemed to have worked for him before, he thought that it would, it would result in a, well, it depends then. Right? Well, if I take into consideration my family, it depends. Because if I died, who would care for my family? But this was a moment where I think the Holy Spirit was at work and not me. 
And I replied, it's not me who cares for my family now. I am just the means by which God right now in these moments has called me to care for my family. I'm the means for God's provision for them. But God doesn't need me. It's not like, oh, those seven people now are just, we lost them. The reason I think I can answer in that way confidently is what's far more dangerous and damaging, in my estimation, is men and women who are unwilling to do very little in resistance to opponents to their faith. Men and women who are unwilling to do very little in resistance to opponents of their faith. What am I communicating to my sons and daughters if I'm willing to deny Jesus for the sake of my family? What I'm communicating to them is that they're my God and that Jesus is not. Brothers and sisters, we can take great risks for the gospel. That's an extreme example. But we can take great risks for the gospel and for the message of forgiveness because we trust in a God who is sovereign over all life. Who cares for us in ways that we don't even recognize. We've been entrusted with this message of forgiveness because we have peace with God. If peace with God isn't a reality, then we should be fearful. The disciples before Jesus brought them peace were afraid. And without peace with God, we should be worried about what man can do to us. But since we have peace with God, what can man do to us? Jesus' words, peace be with you, are exactly what we need to know when we take the message of forgiveness to the world. Nothing on earth, friends, nothing on earth can touch that peace. Friends, you are forgiven. God bears with you patiently. Therefore, because you've been justified by faith, do not fear. Nothing on earth can touch the peace that you have in Jesus Christ. Let's pray. God, we thank you for the reality of the gospel. God, we thank you for the forgiveness that we have in Christ and him alone. God, would we exercise forgiveness as we seek to preach a message of forgiveness? God, would we not stop short of anything but full and free forgiveness? God, would we be patient people, bearing with those around us, recognizing that God's terms and ways are far better than our own? God, would we trust Christ more fully in these areas, in places where we want to manufacture things and results? God, would you cause us to step back, to trust you, to seek to learn to obey all that you've commanded us in order that we might take the good news of Jesus Christ to the world around us? It's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen.